Hey, good morning, all. How's everyone doing? Yeah, doing well. Good, good, good. Um, we are uh, we're in a series. We're continuing a series called State of the Church. Um, yeah, here at Mosaic, our mission is to unite people in the way of Jesus. And so, what that means is, uh, we're just glad you're here, wherever you're at, wherever. Uh, you've come from, whatever you've been through. Um, Uniting people in the way of Jesus isn't just uh, about getting people to agree on the same things. It also means that you're coming from a different place and a different perspective. You might be bringing hurt. You might be struggling with your faith. You might not even be sure you have any faith left. Uh, Or you may just have had a breakthrough. Maybe you've had a struggle and, and there's an open door that you feel like God provided for you, and you're, you're celebrating that. So uniting people in the way of Jesus means that, that people are coming from all different kinds of places, and we're really glad to be on the journey with you all, wherever you're at, wherever you're headed, where, wherever you've been. And so this, this series that we're in, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's quite uh, intrepid, I think, to call a series that state of the church as if we have the universal and the correct perspective on all things church. It's, it's really not that. It's more of um, some things that we see going on in the culture and how it's affecting Mosaic and babies and how we are plotting um, our way through to navigate the, the cultural pressures, um, the, what, what some theologians call the cross shape pressures, like how to be a Christian in um, late modernity in the the 21st century in America. Um, So today, I want to talk, I want to talk about uh, consumerism and and being content in a consumeristic age. And so before we get there, I want to tell you about a painting, Uh, but not just any painting. It's probably one of the most famous paintings in the world. Um, Not necessarily at the time it was painted, uh, but because this particular painting has adorned college d- dorm rooms for ages, way back when I was in college, which was like the dinosaur era. Uh, so I want to tell you about Vincent Van Gogh's uh, Starry Night. So you are probably familiar with this. Uh, you may have even, I don't know, did anybody go to the, the Van Gogh exhibit in Kansas City, that kind of like all-encompassing uh, laser light show-esque sort of immersive thing. Super cool. I missed out this time, but next time I'll do it. Uh, so anyway, Van Gogh um, was born in the Netherlands in the mid-1850s, and by the time he died at 37, so really young, um, he exhibited, uh, and many of us know this about him, but he exhibited these traits of a torture genius. He really was a torture genius, but he was a man who, who deeply loved Jesus. He, he was a Christian, but he had a love-hate relationship with the organized church. Anybody relate to that just a little bit? And so Starry Night is kind of a summation of those feelings about loving God, but, but having a distaste for church and not knowing where his place at in, in the religious world. Um, and so you see in, in Starry Night, the, the deep uh, indigos indicate the presence, the, the all, awe-inspiring, all-encompassing presence of God. Uh, the yellow uh, moon and, and other stars, not other stars, the moon is not a star. Anyway, except the Death Star, but anyway, I will not go too far down there. That is no moon. Anyway, um, so the yellow is, is the warmth of, um, uh, of God's love. And so you, what we see is this, this quaint hamlet uh, below the starry night that's spread out. Um, you, you see the, the buildings as we overlook uh, the, the horizon, and the, the warm yellows are re- reflect the starry night above, and that there, there are um, windows that are, that are alight and, and warm and inviting, except for one building. I know it's kind of small here. I don't know if you can see the building that doesn't have any warm light. It's, it's dark, and the windows are black. Do you see it? It's the church. It's, it, it sort of signals to you from the steeple to say, hey, look at this. All the other windows are lit, but the church's windows are dark, are black. And it's Van Gogh's way of, of, of expressing his uh, distaste and disdain for how he felt rejected uh, by church in his day. Um, 
Van Gogh was at one point a missionary. He, he felt like he wanted to share God's love with people. His mental health issues just, just caused a lot of rejection. And he felt that the church um, catered to insiders and the machinery of religion and it really cast out those that Christ had identified as the ones that he went after, the one sheep uh, the, the, away from the 99 that was lost among the, the, the needy and, and the prostitutes and, and, and the people in, in hard spaces in his days. He felt that deeply, and it reflected in this painting. He actually at one point um, said this about the church, that, that God of the clergyman, he is for me as dead as a doornail, and he called himself no friend of present-day Christianity. So... I know uh, there are some here who, who may feel a deep resonance with, with Van Gogh. And uh, maybe you are a tortured genius. Maybe you're not. You don't have to be to, to, to feel his disdain and his rejection. But some of us have that kind of feeling towards the church. Like, you are here. So in some ways, I'm, it's that old preaching to the choir thing. Why do you need to do that? Well, because I know we come and we bring different things. We bring our different church experiences, church hurt, our expectations, our letdowns, even our failures that we've tried to manage, even kind of cover up because we felt ashamed that there's not a place that we can come and, and bring that into the light, be seen and be heard and be empathized with. We were judged or shamed or rejected ourselves. We, many of us, bring, bring that here. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a melting pot. It's a mixture of of can God still work in my life? Will God still use me? Am I, am I, have I done too much or have I seen too much? Have I said too much? So the good news, the good news for the church in Van Gogh's day is the same good news for us here in our day, even for Mosaic, is that Jesus loves his bride. The scripture t- speaks of the church as Christ's bride. And that's good news for us because if we follow Jesus, if you consider yourself a Christian, you are part of that bride. And just then, as that Jesus is not done shaping and forming and loving and washing and caring for his bride, he's not done shaping and caring and forming and loving and serving you. God is not done with his church, and the good news that that entails means that God is not done with you. He's not done. Now, there's a piece uh, that is a riff on The Starry Night that came out, I don't know, several years ago. Uh, I want to show you because I, I think for us it can help diagnose those of us that have brought our hurt and brought our pain to church and felt rejected and felt used and shamed. I think this riff, this parody of Starry Night can help us process why is the church in the place that she is at? I expected more. I expected a representation of Jesus, and I got messy people, right? I got everything but the love of Jesus. So let's look at Starry Night Urban Sprawl. Uh, it's a little bit fuzzier than the other one, but I'll try and explain it. Um, it's a painting by Ron English, and, and, and in it we see the familiar sky, the, the, the yellow warmth above, the, the deep indigos, uh, but on, in, in the hamlet below, what we see is uh, logos and franchises. There's a McDonald's. I think that's Big Boy Burgers. I'm not totally sure. Um, we, see, we see options. We see the block full of, of opportunities to grab what you want, when you want. Looks like they're open 24-7, some of them. We even see the church. And the difference between... This church and Van Gogh's church is that this church is actually well lit up. Not only that, the steeple draws our, our attention. It calls to us as King Kong um, scales it, and there's a McDonald's logo. The golden arches proclaim its glory atop the steeple in uh, Starry Night of the Urban Sprawl. What, what is this trying to communicate to us? Well, I think it communicates the artist sees the church just as one more option in the buffet of options to get all of your wants met. All the things that you think you want from life, if you don't find it at McDonald's or uh, Big Boy, there's a Mickey back there, down there, if you want to high-five Mickey. If that doesn't quite satisfy, maybe you can go to church 
and see King Kong scale the building and be entertained. Maybe that is what will captivate your attention, scratch all the itches you have, and lead to a happy life. It doesn't, if the church doesn't work, though, there's plenty of things around the corner that can sustain your attention, that calls to you and says, buy me, eat me, use me, sleep with me, drive me, and so on. The church is just one, but one franchises of the religion and the worship of me. It's the church of consumer Christianity that this artist is portraying. Would you rather have pizza or tacos? We got that. Would you prefer Star Trek or Star Wars? Cool, we can debate that, but we got them both. No problem. Would you rather your worship leaders be decked out with a spray tan amidst all the fog machine and the light, laser lights show? That's great. We have that too. Spray tans are fun. I have no problem with them. Whatever. You know what I mean? You get what I'm saying though. You get what I'm saying. Is that you want that? Hey, we got that here. If that doesn't really quite meet your taste, there's something down the block that is going to cater to all of your wants. No sacrifice required, no discomfort guaranteed, a safe space to follow the Jesus of your making. Richard Halverson, former chaplain of the United States Senate, you've, you've heard a riff on this, I'm sure. He says this, In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America. America, where it became an enterprise. It's big business to be in the church. There's something, Sky Jatani, I'll quote him later, but we've heard from him all summer. He calls it the evangelical industrial complex, the machinery of the church that has options. Just there's options. Any way you want to follow Jesus, I'm sure you'll find something that will cater to that want. So to be an apprentice of Jesus means to break out of this cycle of consumer Christianity is to, to first be aware that it's calling to us and it's inundating us and it's telling us that we can have God any way we want Him. We've got to break out of that cycle that's captured us. It's this that darkens our windows and our church and our lives and it pushes people away. To be an apprentice of Rabbi Jesus means to be with Him, to follow him, and to be like him. So the God of consumer Christianity really is at war with apprenticeship to Jesus. And so let me just pause there because I love you so much, and I'm not angry or mad or any of those things. You're probably, as we go on, going to be like, whoa, um, how did he know that I did that yesterday? How did he know I was looking on Amazon or whatever? I don't. These are just my struggles too. So if you go, I feel attacked. Yeah, me too. And I'm preaching this. Right? So when we go after so an idol, remember, an idol. An idol is just made up of, of a trust structure, something we trust in for our security or our sense of success. An idol is often a good thing that we make an ultimate thing, is what Tim Keller says. So you can go, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with spray tans? Or what's wrong with McDonald's? You know, honestly, I don't care. Not much, really. But taken to an ultimate thing, then everything is wrong with it, right? And so I'll leave it to you to discern what good things you've made an ultimate thing. We've all done it. We will all continue to do it. Being aware, being discerning, means that we're reflective as the Spirit of God leads us to challenge those things so we stop giving our time and attention and money to things that promise us things that they will not deliver and put our trust in God alone, right? So um, as I read this, I, I just want to set my tone uh, to know, like, I, like last week we talked about speaking prophetically. There's a passion I will often step into and it's like, whoa, where did this guy come from? Or like, wow, that's really personal. I'm just really, I, I just love Jesus and I love you. And I want, I want us to all hang out more. Is that fair? Is that fair? Okay, so 
here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into Luke chapter 10. Because I want to ask, if we're meant to apprentice Jesus, to, to be with him, to be like him, and to do the things that he does, let's look. How does Jesus handle... Um, he, they wouldn't call it consumerism in the first century ancient Near East, but these kinds of problems, Jesus speaks to this very directly. So in Luke 10, we actually find one of Jesus' most famous stories that he told in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it goes like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. A teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, he the expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he, the expert, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this exchange is totally a setup. This expert in the law, um, these, this kind of dialogue is quoted in other gospels, meaning most likely Jesus taught on what is the, in Matthew 22, it's what is the greatest commandment in all of scripture. And Jesus said it's the greatest and the first. And he quotes uh, the Shema, quotes Deuteronomy. Um, so, so this expert probably had heard Jesus give a teaching on this. And he's going to set Jesus up by saying, hey, I, I'm just curious. Can you, like, can you, I, I want to inherit eternal life. Can you run that down for me one more time? So notice this. Jesus doesn't give him the four spiritual laws or the bridge diagram. Because he's not talking about what do I do to get to heaven, right? That's a very kind of Western mentality of, of eternal life. Eternal life is living the value system of the kingdom of God in your everyday life to those that are around you. Inheriting eternal life means that life starts here and it will continue on into eternity. Eternal life doesn't start when you die, when you go to heaven. Eternal life is a quality of life. Jesus said it's life, live to the fullest, to the abundance, to, to the overflowing of God's love in the kingdom system of values. Okay, So Jesus tells him, you know, what do you know? What, what, what does the law say? And he quotes the law to him, quotes the Shema to him. Love God, love people, everything else, everything hinges on that. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this expert, though, wants to say, now, hold on a second, because I have a follow-up question. That's, that's really good, Jesus. You're a really smart guy. But yeah, check this out. Who's my neighbor? Like, you know, they didn't have uh, Mr. Rogers back then. Won't you be my neighbor? Any of that stuff. So this is a, this is a legitimate question. Who's my neighbor? In other words... Yeah, okay, love is great, love is what God wants, but who do I have to love? Like, how far does God's love reach? How many people in my sphere of influence, how many people that I notice around me, do I have to love that? I have to love the people closest to me. I have to take care of my family, to take care of my kin, I, but like, kin, not Barbie and Ken, but K-I-N, my, okay, yeah. So, how far beyond the people that I am familiar with and responsible for, how many of those people are my neighbor that I have to love? And Jesus goes, sure, that's a great question. But let me tell you a story. So the guy thinks he's setting Jesus up, and Jesus, who is God-made flesh, is actually setting this man up to explain the thing behind the thing. If you want to live in God's love, here's what it looks like. So for us, for us who are wrestling with, is our light on in our church? Is our light on in our life? Is our light on for others to be welcomed into? It's, it's lit up with love. Love is the thing that lights your, your light. And so how far does our light cast its brightness? How far away can people be and still see our light? It has to do with love. What does love really look like? Because this isn't a story to memorize. It's a story to act like, to be and to do. Jesus says this. In reply, Jesus said, 
a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's, a, that's a 15 miles, about a five-hour walk uh, by foot. Scooters, I'm not sure. Those e-scooters, they did not have those. Uh, but when he was doing it, it's a downhill. It's not, it's not a hard walk. It's downhill. It's kind of twisty and, and, and windy. But he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He had compassion for him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured on oil and wine, kind of an early antiseptic and, and, and comfort. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you might, may have. Which, Jesus says, of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law, I'm sure reluctantly, I'm, I'm sure seeing the, the, the turn and the twist back to him, replied the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even say, and I'll explain this in a minute, couldn't even say Samaritan. He just said the one, the guy, the dude, the dude that did the thing. That's the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, memorize this in Greek and debate the nuance. Put it on your wall. Tattoo it on your arm. No, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Now, what I love about this is that this isn't just a command. This is the God of the universe commissioning this man. Go and preach the gospel is what he says. Go and do likewise. Every command has the grace embedded, pregnant in that command to complete that mission. This man is getting commissioned. He's getting awakened to new life. To understand, I just thought this was like a mental exercise. I was looking for a loophole to just like take care of my family and be off on my merry way. And Jesus says, go. You are now empowered to fulfill this. Go and do likewise. And he says the same to us today. Go and do likewise. So the Samaritans, many of you know this background, but the Samaritans were seen as outcasts by the Jews. They were uh, half-breeds, they were said. They, they had intermarried and intermingled with foreign nations, and so they weren't full-blood Jews, and so they kind of kept to themselves in a, in a, in a, in a region called Samaria. Uh, John chapter 4 shows Jesus and the disciples walking right through Samaria, which... Jews would walk around the entire region to just avoid contact with them. That's how much they hated them. So Jesus sets him up as the hero of the story. When, in fact, when, if you were to hear this or read this in the early uh, Jewish thought culture, you would see the Levi or the priest as the hero. They were the extra uh, special holy people is what the Sally Lloyd-Jones uh, Jesus Storybook Bible calls all the fairies. They're the extra super holy special people is who they are. And Jesus flips it. And he says, you know the honest politician really is the good guy in the story. And you're like, what? Like, is there a thing as an honest politician? I don't know. You know, the, the loving jihadist. You know, like the family-oriented like, like, it's like supposed to really slap you across the face with how scandalous those words of a good Samaritan hit you. And that's who Jesus makes the hero of the story. To grab their attention and to say, this, this isn't upside down. This does not compute. This doesn't make sense. But at the end of the day, my loophole, the expert says, doesn't work. And I have to admit the person that loved his neighbor was the one who showed mercy on him. We see Jesus um, stopping for people just like this person. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is on his way. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus was in the business of saving the entire world, you know, through his redemption. So he had important business, like the most important business any human has ever had. And he still stopped to heal people who asked him for it. To feed crowds 
to cast out demons and free people from demonic oppression, to hang out with kids and say, such is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus had time for that because he knew the interruptions were his ministry. It's the purpose for which he had been sent. And now this expert was getting recruited to the Jesus mission to say, you know, when you go about your day, all those people that are asking for help, they're interrupting you, they're, they're trying to get on your calendar, that's your mission. You think your mission is this. Sure, that's nice, that's good, do that, but don't forget about these people too. We see Jesus just upending the status quo over and over again by heroizing the wrong person, by stopping for the wrong people, for eating with the outcasts and the scandalized. It's so fascinating how Jesus says, this is what love looks like. It's actionable. Love is actionable. It's a, love can be a feeling, but oftentimes it's either an infatuation or some kind of loyalty to people that look like us only or vote like us or talk like us or whatever. And Jesus says love costs. Love is sacrificial. And love is shown through our actions towards people we don't even know, towards people who might not even like us, who don't believe the same things that we do, who don't vacation in the same spots, who, you know, they use Chrome and we use Safari. I mean, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's, it's those people. And Jesus says, that's what loving your neighbor looks like, is helping and sacrificing for them. You know, it's through, it's through the manifestations of Jesus' power where Jesus is showing what God is like. He's saying God is love, but it's not an abstract love. It's not a love that sits out far in the distance. It's not a love that kind of just tolerates. It's love that gets involved. Love gets its hands dirty. Love comes near when everyone else would rather draw back. Love shows up uninvited. No one invited God to show up and hang on a cross. Love shows up uninvited because it believes the best and it tries to do the best for the others that would rather not have anything to do with them. God, God's heart is revealed through Jesus' actions. If you want to know what God's love looks like, just follow Jesus through the Gospels. Jesus is the perfect representation of God and his love. If you, if you have a doctrine, if you have a belief about God that you can't see in the person and work of Jesus, it needs to go. Because Jesus is perfect theology. He is perfect theology about love and what it looks like when it shows up in the neighborhood. Okay? So forget the, the church as a whole as, as, for a minute. Whose light... Yeah, forget the church, and, and when you consider the church, how, how dark or how bright the, the light you may consider it to be. Is the light on in your life? Can people see into the windows of your soul, and are they seeing the burning brightness of love reflected, re- coming, coming back at them, reflecting Jesus? So it's easy to see ourselves in the story, to rush and go, I want to be the Good Samaritan. I'm trying to do better so I'm the Good Samaritan. Uh, because it's obvious that Jesus has heroized this person and wants us to be more like the Good Samaritan. But what um, the tendency is to sometimes get buried in all the shoulds and coulds, and, and it just become kind of a new set of laws that we're not measuring up to. What I want us to understand is Jesus is the better Samaritan. He is the ultimate Samaritan. And we're not first the Good Samaritan. We're not even first the the Levite or the priest, by the way. We're actually the person broken down on the side of the road in needing of help. And Jesus is the one who has come along. He has bandaged us up. He has put us back together, free of charge, filled us with love, and has said now, go and do likewise. It's the overflow of love. It's, it's that we don't deserve this. Someone has paid the price for us on our behalf. Plunk down the credit card and says, charge it all to my account. And we're so overwhelmed with gratitude. That is why we go. That is why we want to make sure that our light 
is turned on. It's because what's been done for us first, right? Now, here's the thing. Um, We need to ask ourselves then, because of the overflow of love we want to live in, where is my light not shining bright? In what ways do I reflect more of the Levite and the priest? In what ways am I not passing people by? Or, Or in what ways am I moving to the other side of the road and just passing people by, hoping someone else is going to take care of it, right? Because here's the thing. The priest and the Levite, they were seen as important men in their day and age, and they had places to go. The priest and the Levite, they had, they had very um, specific uh, laws of cleansing, and, and they could have seen the guy with blood all over him, could have been a dead body for they all, know, uh, all that they know. They were on their way maybe to some temple service. If they touch a dead body or they, they handle something with blood, they can't fulfill their duty. They can't go to work and do their thing. So there's always good reasons to pass on, by on the other side of the road, hoping, praying, maybe send a prayer. God send somebody. You know, he did. It's you, but we'll get to that here in a bit, right? Like, there's always good reasons to pass somebody by and hope God sends somebody else. And I just want to ask the question, yeah, in what ways, before we consider ourselves a good Samaritan, what ways do we really embrace the lifestyle with good reasons sometimes that we pass people by? But I want to make this point before we, we get there. The good Samaritan also had places to be. Notice that he wasn't out for an afternoon stroll either. He had places to be. He stayed a night with the man. He, he plunked down his credit card and said, I still have to go. I still have to do the thing, and I'll be back. Right? This isn't about importance. It's not about how much time you have. There, there, we all have the same amount of 168 hours in a week. It's how do we allocate those things. Are we so caught up in our life and in our way of doing things, or can we see interruptions, big and small, sent by God as a part of the mission that he's called us to? So maybe these are some ways. I'm just speaking totally hypothetically. Some of these may or may not apply to me too, but I'm just going to read some and ask, are these maybe ways that our culture has conditioned us to pass by on the other side of the road? Have you ever filled your schedule so full of stuff you can't even handle an interruption? Like you're burning the candle at both ends. You're up late. You're up early just to get the work done. Maybe, you're, maybe you've got teens and they can't drive and you've got a, your, your mom or dad's chauffeur for the summer. But you fit that and it's like, it, it's like you're screeching your tires because you pull up and stop so quick. All right, kids, it's like you're, they're on a helicopter bailing out or something like that. It's like, all right, everybody out. Parachutes deploy, right? And, so, and then you're off to the next thing. You ever been there where you just feel your life so full of things you can't possibly handle anything else? That's a way. That's a way that we pass by. We don't make time. Have you ever just, you know, you ever done your budget? Maybe you've got a, what's the zero balance or zero dollar budget? You like budget every single dollar to every last penny so you know where it's going, and you go, that's good, that's good stewardship. I know where all my money is going. Everything has a job. Everything has a, a bucket it's going into. But what happens when you just don't have anything extra? You don't have any wiggle room or any bandwidth for, you know, a person on the side of the road holding a sign. Can you spare $20? Nope, everything's allocated. I don't have any more to give. Or maybe you're you're over your spending limit and a lot of other, you know, credit cards. You've got to open one more just to make it through. Like, that's a way that we oftentimes pass on by, on the other side of the road. Have you ever been so emotionally overwhelmed? That when you show up to a meeting, you're just frazzled. You, like, people can feel your energy and it's not a great thing. It's like you're just kind of like... You know, oh my gosh, I don't know where my pen is, or like, oh, I left my wallet here. You know, you just can't, like, you can't get on the same page with yourself. And you're the anxious, you ever use that as a weapon? Just a little bit? I mean, it's like friendly fire. It's like, it's like you show up frazzled so no one, like, gives you a hard time. It's like, whoa, you seem overwhelmed, so maybe we'll just reschedule. Or you kind of know if you show up that way, 
they won't hassle you about the times that you were like five minutes or 50 minutes late last week. You show up because you can kind of control the environment with anxiety. And when we do that, we oftentimes are consuming other people's peace in that space. This is totally hypothetical. I don't know. None of your bosses called me. I have no idea what's going on in your life. Your, your husband did not email me. You know, but we do that, right? It's like you just, how are you doing? Busy. You know, like that, okay, that's not an emotion. Okay, whatever. You know, we just kind of do that in our culture. And, and people just go, oh my gosh, are you okay? And they give you all the space and all the room. Like, yeah, we do that. Bless you. Um, do you harbor unforgiveness and maybe keep people at arm's length? Like people even you love, people in your family, but you can't quite like just get over the thing, the one comment they made, the quip, the whatever. They were late or they did what, you know, whatever it is. And that builds up and we, we have a buildup of bitterness and unforgiveness. And so we just start building walls. And we know like they're going through stuff too. People, other people have things going on in their lives, but it's like, I'm not going to send the text. They don't deserve it. I'm not going to drop food off because they don't do that for me ever. And we just pass by. Do you, do you harbor prejudice against people groups? Do you other others? You like, you sift them in categories. Well, that's just, it's just the way people are in the South. Well, maybe, I don't know. You know, it's like how they, it's how they do it in New England. They're just kind of rude and gruff, right? Like we build up just these little prejudices. I mean, not to even speak necessarily about the big prejudices, the, the racism and the, the, the biases we have against others. It's just even little thing. Well, that's their family. and You know how their family does it. Pass by because... Again, people have stuff going on in their life. And if we can other them, if they're not, if they're our neighbor, but not like our neighbor neighbor, you know, God's love doesn't necessarily have to extend that far, right? Because they're out there, way out there. We don't extend empathy to be open when what, what others are experiencing. We, we show up and just constantly center ourselves, our experiences, our wants, our needs, our things, and we never sit with people and go, what's going, tell me about you, tell me about your life, what's going on, hey, I remember, like, how are your kids doing, how's that, how'd that thing go, how, how are you really doing, you know, you get past the news, sports and weather, small talk, but if you never do that, center other people and, and work to have empathy, and then finally, just how common this is where we downplay the experience of other people who have been harmed or hurt. When we say, oh, yeah, I'm sure you've been hurt by church. You know, that's not a big deal. You've got to get over that. You know, that wasn't that big of a deal. You know, I know people that have been through way worse. We, we downplay other people's experiences of their life. Maybe how traumatic some things were. There's maybe some, like, things that are still recurring, cycles, or, or just thought patterns even of how that affected them. And we go, man. Like, other people just seem to get over this a lot sooner than you do. God, that's just a way we, we, we go around people and their problems, and we don't shine Jesus' love into their life. Now, where does this come from? And I, I just want to... <laughs> there are probably lots of different ways you're all hoping I go with this. I'm going to go back to consumerism. So there's lots of reasons. Why do we do this to each other? And I'm totally going to let you down, I bet, because I'm going to bring it back to what I initially talked about. So I'm sorry. If you want to send an email, I gave you Ben's email last week. So um, I love you all. So we're going to, I, I want to really come back and focus on this consumerism piece. Because when we are inundated with a consumeristic message, people are valuable for us only as, as long as they're meeting our needs. And relationships, people, and even God himself are disposable because they're not giving us what they want, any, what we want anymore. Sky Jatani in his book, The Divine Commodity, says this. With the advent of mass production during the Industrial Revolution, previously unimaginable quantities of goods were being manufactured far more than the market needed. 
In order to keep the economic engines running, manufacturers needed a way to artificially increase demand for their products. Advertising was born. John Wanamaker, who opened Philadelphia's first department store in an abandoned railway depot in 1875, recognized that the thriving industrial economy required consuming products at a pace equal to the rate of manufacturing. People had to purchase more items that they needed more often than they wanted. As a result, Wanamaker believed the goal of business was no longer to manufacture products, but to manufacture desire for the products. According to the Times, every day each American is exposed to 3,500 desire-inducing advertisements, all promising that satisfaction is just one more purchase away. Rodney Clapp says the consumer is schooled in insatiability. He or she is never to be satisfied, as, at least not for long. The consumer is tutored that people basically consist of unmet needs that can be appeased by commodifying goods and experiences. So, in other words, we use people to get what we need from them. We value them as long as they're meeting our wants and our needs. And because we've been conditioned to just see ourselves as, as a pile of unmet needs, it's easy to move on to the next thing that promises happiness. It puts us in a ever-increasing, uh, like a cycle of ever-increasing workload. We're working harder and longer to impress people that don't really care about us, quite frankly. And when that doesn't work, we, cre- we uh, create more and more debt. We take on more and more credit card debt so that we can buy more stuff that promises happiness and reflect an image that we want out into the world. And then when that falls apart, we go to Amazon for a little retail therapy. Maybe if we're a foodie, we have an experience that we can Instagram or, you know, we can TikTok and, and, and get likes and subscribes on our channel. And it's all commodifying this stuff. And it's creating this cycle, really, of depression and anxiety because we can't ever get our real needs met. When we're locked in a consumer mindset, things only have value as long as they're useful. I, I've said that two or three times. I'm going to keep saying it. They're only valuable to us as long as they're useful. Gadgets, I mean, think about the you know, Apple release. Stuff. Like every year they're releasing a new phone. Why? What's wrong with your phone? Well, nothing, but your friends are all getting the new one. So guess what you need to do, right? And it doesn't have to be phones. It's cars, it's vacations, it's experiences, it's where your kids go to school. Whatever it is, trying to keep up and trying to, to meet unmet desires and supposed needs is driving us like depressed and anxious, okay? So I want to ask, like, how do we break free of this? And this may seem like an oversimplification, but that is really the answer, is to simplify. Um, there's a movement right now called minimalism. It's been around for several years. There's lots of podcasts. There's even a documentary on Netflix about a lifestyle, an alternative lifestyle that instead of buying and consuming things, it's about living with the basics, having maybe a capsule wardrobe where you wear, like you have seven outfits and you just kind of cycle through those. Or, you know, you, you go without a, you're maybe a one-car family or maybe you downsize your house or maybe you go through your stuff like Marie Kondo style and go, does this spark joy? That's all the same mindset of like, do we own our stuff or does it really own us? Have you ever tried to get rid of something lately and how hard that is to like just like let go? to send it on, to maybe bless someone else with that stuff. Like, you, like, there's a whole emotional process that you have to go through with some stuff. Why? It's not alive. It's not even like a pet. Definitely not a child or a spouse. It's just a thing. It's an inanimate object. Like, we assign so much meaning to our stuff. We are a nation of consumers. And so, Richard Foster in The Freedom of Simplicity says this, Jesus Christ and all the writers of the New Testament call us to break free of mammon lust, and that's just another way of saying consumerism, and live in joyous trust. They point us toward a way of living in which everything we have we receive as a gift, and everything we have is cared for by God, and everything we have is available to others when it is right and good. This really frames the heart of Christian simplicity. That's, that's just another word for minimalism. You think it's like a, a decade-old thing. It's actually a 2,000-year-old spiritual practice that Christians have passed on from one to another, freeing and lightening the load to follow Jesus with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind so that we can love our neighbors as ourselves. 
It, it is the means of liberation and power to do what is right, to overcome the forces of fear and avarice. Avarice is just out of, avarice is such a great word, by the way. It's like out of control greed, right? So here are just 10 things. You take what you want, leave what you need to, but there are his 10 suggestions for simplicity, okay? Buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. Reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. If you don't know if it's an addiction, just go without it for a week and you'll find out real quick, okay? That's a joke, but kind of serious. So are we okay? Like you're going, oh no, oh no. Am I going to do this stuff? I don't want to do any of this stuff. Just follow the spirit. Follow the spirit, okay? Develop a habit of giving things away. Refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern gadgetry. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. Develop a deeper appreciation for creation. Look with a healthy skepticism at all buy-now-pay-later schemes. Obey Jesus' instructions about plain, honest speech. So, no hype. Like, have an allergy to hype, I think is what he's saying. Reject anything that breeds the oppression of others. And shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. Those are, those are great guidelines for a simple lifestyle. Because if you want to know what people are wondering about the church, about our church, in fact, a lot of us look at people and, and maybe even follow Jesus or in town or, or know something about religion, but they're, they're not here. They're at brunch or they slept in or they're doing other things. And a lot of us are going, wow, look at all these like hypocritical people. Look at all these like backslidden people. Look at all these lost people. That's what we think a lot of times when we look at other people. And do you know what they're thinking? Do you know what they're wondering? Like a, 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 a great deal, a great portion of people who have left the church. You know what they're thinking? I wonder what church is out there that won't harm me again. That won't use me again. That won't shame me again. Living simply and freeing in the love of God helps us turn the lights on. And I'm not talking about the 501c3 of the church. The 501c3, you know, the 501c3 church's job is to make sure the literal lights are on, okay? We pay the utility bills. That's what the 501... The 501c3 of the church will never shine a warm light through the windows. That's our job. That's our job. We're never going to put on the 501c3 church organization what ought to be done by everyday followers of Jesus, you and me. Living in the love of Jesus freely and lightly, not to use people, not to consume things, not to see God as a genie that we rub and he pops out to be at our beck and call, but to go out in our nine-to-five jobs, in our neighborhoods, among our families and our friends. And to not pass by, but be right there with the readiness to get our hands dirty, to spend time in empathy with people, to love them like Jesus said, to go and do likewise. And I was actually, I was here last week after church, after our gathering, and I was actually talking to Vicki Pantle. Vicki, where are you? That's really bright. There you are. Welcome back, Vicki. We love you. We love Vicky. So if you don't know Vicky, she definitely wants to get to know you. Am I right? I mean, she's just a community builder. So I was talking to Vicky, and Edward was back there, Edward Tuttle. And we were talking about coffee mugs, or they were. I was just kind of like, I was just curious. We're talk- oh, we're talking about coffee? Like our favorite caffeine delivery system? Like what, coffee mugs? Yes, I want to know about this. So they were talking about how difficult it is to go to a fun place, a new place. She had just gone to, to, to England. Um, how hard it's not, it is to not get a new coffee mug, right? Like, or whatever your, your souvenir of choice would be. How hard is it? Because I got a cabinet full of coffee mugs, but I want a new one. And we were just talking, like, first world problems. Is that a thing we still say? But it is, so I'm just going to say it. Um, it's like, how do you justify getting a new thing when you, when you have plenty of old things that are fine? That, that is the tension. And Edward, just nonchalantly, he's like, yeah, we, we have a, a one-in-one-out rule in our house. It's like, okay, say more about that. It's like, if he buys a new coffee mug, 
He's got to get rid of one. Ooh, that's a struggle, isn't it? That's a struggle. But, I mean, if you want to simplify even the list, a one-in-one-out rule for your life. Um, hopefully not friends, because we have, we have more, you know, capacity. <laughs> like, all right, who's up today? All right, see, I got to go. No, but for stuff, a one-in, a one-out rule, because I want to invite you into that struggle. I want to invite you into the tension of feeling, of resisting being a consumer and just gathering more when so many have so little. To resist the cultural pull to just get what every like whim or want met. I want to invite you into the struggle, because it is. It's a struggle. But that is where God forms you and shapes you in generosity and in love. The struggle of saying no to yourself and maybe no to other people. No, I, we are, that's not in the budget for us. We need a little bit more of a cushion. We're not going to overextend ourselves. To say no to yourself. Culture tells you, man, if you're saying no to yourself or your church is saying to say no to yourself, that's really restrictive and that's kind of violence on your soul. You should buy anything you want on credit if necessary. If not, just steal it, right? Like that's just, it's saying if you have a desire, you got to find a way to meet that. And Jesus says, no, that's not true at all. Quite often, it's actually saying no to yourself to form character so that you can say a bigger yes to something more important. We have said yes to all these little good things that we've made ultimate things, so we can't say no to anything, and we haven't made room for the ultimate yes, which is room for God in our life to work and move and to love others through us. So yes, I want to invite you into the struggle, whether it's a one-in, one-out mentality, whether it's resisting all the hype, and propaganda through advertising, all the things. Because I want your light to be on. I don't want it to be said of our generation that our church's light was off. I want the struggle and I want the challenge because I want the warmth to shine in our city, in our region, so that people know Mosaic is a place you can come. No matter where, where you've been or who you are, you'll be loved. That's what I want for us. So, Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to have the worship team come on up. At the end of every message, I'd love to make it as practical as I can so you know what to do. Jesus was always very clear, go and do this. Here's what I want us to wrestle with today. Here's your your way to put this into practice. To ask yourself this question. Who are you stopping for? Who have I stopped for lately? Who have I stopped to make sure that they know my light is on for them? To sit and empathize with, to sit and see, is there something I can do to meet a need that they have? Who are you stopping for? And so every week we have been doing communion. So I'm going to invite uh, Henry to help me serve communion. And along with that, we have read the Lord's Prayer to prepare our hearts for communion for the Lord's Supper. So why don't you read this with me, okay? Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.